0: Well, we'll be back in 1 Thessalonians 4 today. Most of us have, if you need an outline, you don't have one. Uh, The guys, hold up your hand if you want one to take some notes. There, the guys back there will get you one. Marie, aren't you a straight A student? Okay, yeah. That's why she takes notes. That's why she gets A's. So you you have a cell phone, right, everybody? Oh, did you get a haircut? Styling. Okay. Oh, you're leaving us, aren't you? Are you going to be here next Sunday? Okay. Is that your last Sunday next Sunday? Evelyn's ditching us, but that's okay. She's going to college. She's going to go up to Chico State, is that right? To study audiology? Okay. Is that ears or speech? I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, we'll pray for you and uh, we'll see you next Sunday, okay? You have a cell phone. Everybody has a cell phone these days, right? How many has, how many people here have ever lived in an age when there was no cell phone? How many? Yeah. Oh, quite a few. How many of you have never lived in a world that did not have cell phones? Let's see your hands. Yeah. You're young. 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 Okay. Let's say so you have your cell phone, right? Haven't you think... Oh, I'm going to do something cool. I'm going to see how sturdy it is. So you take your cell phone, you find a bridge or someplace, and you just drop it off of the bridge, you know, and it smashes into a bunch of pieces. Right. Then what we do is we're going to call Apple. We're going to say, hey, you sold me a defective phone. You know, I dropped it off of a bridge and it broke. And that's your fault. So I want you to give me a new phone. Is that how it works? No, it's not how it works. But. We often live life, the Christian life, we often treat God that way. And if you go to First Thessalonians chapter four, and we're going to read verses three through eight. Paul specifically is addressing sexual purity, uh, sexual morality Uh, in our world today. uh, People live outside the boundaries that God has set for sexual behavior. And then all kinds of terrible things happen. And yet. Then we turn and we blame God. Uh, We go outside of the owner's manual uh, and partake in behavior that God said, don't do that. We do it anyway. And then we blame him or we wonder, why isn't this working? So in verse three, Paul says, first Thessalonians chapter four, for this is the will of God. What's the will of God? Your sanctification Well, what do you mean by sanctification? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we'll get more into this next week. We're going to focus today on the word sanctification. And I want to spend a few weeks on sanctification because it's such an important teaching of scripture uh, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to grasp what this ten dollar theological word means because it has a direct bearing On your everyday life. And in this context. Sanctification. Is connected to abstaining from sexual immorality. Which means. Drum roll please. uh, Just joking. But. Any. Sexual behavior. That is not between a man and a woman. Within the boundaries of marriage. Is sexual immorality. Immorality. It's simple. It's clear. It's easy. It's popular. It will win you tons of friends if you preach that message, right? But God is not confused when He communicates to us about proper sexual behavior. And He's the one who created us, He's the one who wrote the manual on relationships and sexual behavior. And He says, here's the boundary. And by the way, I hope I don't offend anyone, but God loves sex. Hope I don't offend anyone. God endorses sexual behavior. Because sometimes as Christians, we're like, oh goodness, he's talking about sex. Oh my gosh, wow, that's embarrassing. I feel awkward and feel uncomfortable. Why? Didn't God create sex and then he called it? Very good. Very good. God creates its man who corrupts. So God says, hey, I'm in favor of this. In fact, I bless that behavior. But here's some boundaries. It will be between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. And by the way, God says that's where it will be everything it can be and should be. That's where you will really flourish and delight and find tremendous joy in sexuality. If you stay within my boundaries, don't treat it like that cell phone. Don't throw it off the bridge and break it in a million pieces and then say, hey, why isn't this working? OK, little rabbit trail. Push some of my buttons. OK. Yeah, thanks. She said she loves rabbit trails. Verse four. What does abstaining from sexual immorality mean? Verse four, it means that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. Why do they? What does he Why do they use these weird words? He's saying that each of you just know how to practice self-control with your own body in sanctification and honor. Don't live life in your human body in lustful passion like the unbelievers do who do not know God and make sure that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is avenger in all these things. Once again, just a sneak preview for weeks to come. You know, that's an interesting statement. Sexual immorality, sexual behavior outside of marriage between a man and a woman is a trespass against others. It's a defrauding of others. In other words, it's a form of cheating. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Sometimes you say, uh, you know, he had an affair. He cheated on me. Well, God says through the pen of Paul that any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman in any form or any way, whether you're married or not, is a form of cheating. Because you're using your body for a purpose for which it was not created by God. And you're taking From somebody else. It's your own pleasure, your own desire. You're not really thinking of the other person's best interest when you're outside of those boundaries. Verse seven, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. Another interesting turn of words. Notice he doesn't say, but for sanctification, he says, but in sanctification. Sanctification, God has called us. Now, verse eight, if nothing makes you sit up straight in your seat, this verse should. So he who rejects this teaching is not rejecting man, but rejecting the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Wow. Paul says, just in case you're going to come after me, guys, you better think twice because this isn't my command. This is God's command. These are God's rules. I want us today because in just these six verses, he mentions the word sanctification three times. So one of the rules of interpreting scripture is, of course, every verse, every word is important. But if he's repeating a word three times in the span of five verses, then that's like a megaphone right up against our ear. There is something about sanctification that God. Oh, I forgot my little picture for the cell phone. Uh, There's something that God wants us to know about sanctification. As I said, I think, not think, uh, I'm adamant that we as Christians learn what this word means because it has a direct bearing on your daily life each and every day. The word sanctification, here's an inclusive definition. We're talking about specifically the progressive, you know, progressive movement, advancing, growing. It's a progressive work of God. And this may shock some of you and you'll have to come back next week to hear more. It's a progressive work of God and man. See, the Bible teaches that I am supposed to cooperate with God in my spiritual growth. There's no such thing as the spiritual God fairy. He comes down, you know, you're at Disney or remember the old time Disney every Saturday night or was it Sunday night? And, you know, that uh, fairy or whatever it is, you know, the wonderful world of Disney, Poof. you know, you know, that's not how our spiritual life works. Sometimes we're so lazy as Christians. In fact, we can be so lazy as Christians that people wonder if we're even really a Christian. Because we don't want to do the work. We expect God to do everything. And come back again next week. We're going to look at that more. Because it's one of two extremes. It's either, well, I know I can't be sinless in this life and it's so frustrating. I try to do the right thing and it just never works. So either we give up and we're just filled with hopelessness in our Christian walk Or the other extreme, we think we can strive for perfection. Uh, And that's not possible either. So it's a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin. And more like Christ in our actual lives. It's the process of being separated from sin and set apart to God's holiness. And here, in the context of Paul's. Letter to the Thessalonians in chapter four, abstaining from sexual immorality was the very first priority. In their devotion to sanctification, isn't that interesting? I found that interesting. Paul usually does theology in the opening chapters of the book, and then he gets practical in the closing chapters of the book. And of all the things that he could talk about as he prioritized the Christian, the Christian life. He's writing to believers, which implies what? That believers can struggle with sexual purity. That's one of the apologetic proofs of the reliability of Scripture. Scripture paints a very accurate picture of mankind. Scripture doesn't leave out all the bumps and bruises and uh, all those things. So this is a priority for him. As he's talking to these believers, the priority of sexual purity. He alerts us that that purity is his first priority to devotion and sanctification. And remember, in verse one, as we met last week, it's the very first issue that he wants to discuss for those who want to excel still more. Remember last week First Thessalonians four, verse one? I know we've slept since then, but we're talking about. We are talking about how to excel still more. He told them, meaning he wanted them to be extraordinary Christians, not the average run of the mill, status quo, apathetic, dull, sleepy, tired Christians. He said, I want you to be the most extraordinary Christian you can be. And then he says, the first thing to be an extraordinary Christian that I want to talk to you about is sexual purity. Wah, wah, wah. I mean I mean I just think it's so practical that it's amazing, and then you want to stop and think about the culture of paul 's day, the world that these believers were living in, and of course Thessaloniki was in what country the country today is Greece, not just a movie, it's a country, that world was just saturated with sexual immorality, even to the point that it had infiltrated the religious system. And they had religious prostitutes by the thousand, male and female prostitutes, at the temple. And to be right with the gods, so that the gods wouldn't get angry, you should go to the temple and have indiscriminate sex with these temple prostitutes. It was everywhere. By the way, let's not judge them. All it was it was ancient pornography. Millions of people in our country have religious sexual relations every day on the Internet with pornography. It's really no different. So that's why he's addressing this. To be an extraordinary Christian to have a vibrant witness to be used effectively by God you must conduct yourself sexually in a way that's pleasing to God you must be pure in a very impure world i don't know about you i'm just going to be honest with you you may not think much of me maybe you can't think any worse of me than you already do i don't know some of you some of you are going mm mm, mm. I like TV. I'm just going to be honest. I'm not much for the movies. I'm not really a person to go to the movies unless it's a real life movie. Like I went to see Dunkirk. I really enjoyed that. Uh, But I'm not into uh, fiction. I like nonfiction. I like true stories. But I do like TV. But man, I I can't even watch the commercials hardly anymore. You know, and and the TV, it's, it's just filth. Uh, I, you know, and I just in our own brief, well, not brief anymore. I'm 50 in in my medium brief life. Things have changed. I mean, it's just really and mom and dad. I don't know how you do it, how you keep your I mean, I'm not saying I don't know how we do it. I'm being rhetorical. I don't know how you do it. Keeping your kids away from all that. Uh, And now look what's happened. Everybody has it in the palm of their hand. You, You can watch and see whatever you want. You can carry it around in your pocket. It's really uh, it's just quite disturbing. Uh, and the, the media and the entertainment industry uh, has such influence and power because they reach millions of people. Uh, and then they spend years nurturing and introducing immorality until we get used to it and we're comfortable with it and we're not offended by it anymore. Remember the when I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but think about when was the last time you saw something on television and it just almost made you gasp like, wow, that's that's just, you know, I don't think we gasp as much as we used to. We're just used to it. That's the world that he was writing to. That's our world, too, isn't it? So to excel still more. To live out sanctification. Paul says the first thing I want us to focus on. Is being pure in an impure world. Now I want to mention this. This isn't in your notes. This is a bonus. I'm not going to charge you for this slide. Uh, This is a free gift just for calling. Okay. Sanctification is not justification. Duh. Yeah, I know that. Well, I'm just reminding you. Okay. We'll see some differences. Justification. Is our legal standing before God. This is because Christ died for our sins. The scriptures say, if I accept Christ's death in my place, it's a personal decision between me and God that he died in my place. I accept that death for myself because I realize that God is offended by my sin and there's nothing I can do about it. But Jesus, because he was sinless, perfect lamb. Removes that if I accept that and embrace it, I have a legal, unchanging, permanent standing of acceptance before God. That's what justification is. Romans chapter eight says that he justified us in Christ. It only happens once. I'm never justified again. It's completely, entirely, 100 percent the work of God. I cooperate with God in my spiritual growth after salvation, even though it's his divine power. But not in my salvation. In fact, if you wanted another word for justification, you could say salvation. You could say regeneration. There are some slight variances in meaning, but uh, you can do that. That means before God, we're perfect in this life. Not my actual daily living. I know some of you think that about me, that I'm as close to perfect as you can get. I know. I'm glad my wife's not here today. But justification, I am perfect in God's eyes because when he looks at me, there's someone standing between me and him. The man, Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The reason that that has to be that way is because God cannot look upon sin. So he cannot look upon me because I'm a sinner. But if I clothe and wrap myself in Jesus Christ, God can deal with me. He can have a relationship with me. He can call me his child. He can give me an inheritance. He can do all those things. And he sees me perfectly, not because of myself, but because I am in Christ. Two of the most important words in the entire New Testament we see again and again in Christ Christ. That's our identity. Identity. A lot of identity thieves out there today. But our identity is in Christ. That's a good sermon title. Someone make a note of that. Identity thief. Okay. That's good. Uh, That came from the Lord. I better not take credit or the lightning will strike. That came from the Lord. Okay. And it's the same in all Christians. Justification is the same. By the way, I am watching the clock. We're not going to get all this done today, so I'm just going to talk until we're out of time. Here's sanctification and how it differs from justification. Sanctification is about our internal condition. It's about my growing. It's about my holiness. It's the way I live my life in a way that's pleasing to God. And it continues throughout my whole life. I will not be perfectly sanctified until I'm in the presence of Jesus. Because in the presence of Jesus, we know that the sin nature is removed. And we are who we should have been all along. We'll be like Adam and Eve were before they sinned. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We will not be perfect in this life. Now, next week, we'll look at there are there is a branch of Christendom, uh, people such as the Wesleyan holiness movement uh, and others who believe you can attain, if not absolute sinless perfection in this life as a Christian. You can have moments or or I'm trying not to be uncharitable, but it's silliness to me. They believe you can have pockets of sinlessness in this life. Uh, I don't know if I've ever had one of those pockets. I don't think so. Uh, Even if I have a moment where I'm not actually committing a sin, I'm still a sinner. So we'll look at that. Uh, And last but not least, this explains why we see some Christians seem to be so strong spiritually and some Christians seem to struggle spiritually because sanctification is different between believers, it's greater in some, it's less in some. And why is that? There's something on that list that tells me why it's greater in some than in others. What's the word that probably tells us why? Cooperate. Cooperate. If you're not big on co-ops, it's time for you to join. God wants you to join his co-op. You and Jesus and the Spirit and the Father are going to come together. And you're going to co-op so that you can grow in your Christian walk. Some of us Christians don't cooperate with God. And there's a whole host of reasons. We don't need to go into those today. But, you know, it's like Jacob just wrestling with God. Just wrestling with God. Paul tells the Ephesians, you know, he talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some believers, and he's talking to believers there. The Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives. But we're like a bucket of cold water we just pour it on the fire and we quench the Spirit's word With our sinful behavior, with our sinful attitudes, with our sinful hearts. So I just wanted us to make sure that we understand that. This is one of those times when one plus one equals one. I cooperate with God and I get a whole life. I experience the entire Christian life. Sanctification, this is important. You might want to jot this down. It's two parts. The scriptures say we are to be set apart from sin, but set apart to God. There has to be the balance of both. I can't be focusing all my efforts on just not sinning. Because if I do that, then I'm just going to go right back to it. It's. Focusing on putting off the sin, but then turning to God and putting on, replacing the sin with the behavior, the thoughts, the words that God calls me to. If you read Ephesians or Colossians, Paul talks a lot about put off, put on, put off the old man, put on the new man, put off grumbling, put on gratefulness, you know, put off being unloving to each other, put on love. It's not enough to stop something. We have to start something. Sanctification involves both those things parts and, and I think that's why sometimes the Christian life seems and feels you won't hear me use that word very often and feels kind of lukewarm or kind of average because we're we're not striving to put on the righteousness that God calls us to we tend to get stuck in that rut of always trying to put on off, And our minds are focused on all those things that we're trying to supposed to be putting off. When we should be striving also to implement all those things that God wants us to have in our lives. Dr. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book talks about three stages of regeneration. Uh, or three stages of sanctification. Sorry, three stages of sanctification. And no, we're not going to do all three today. Some of you broke out in a sweat when you saw that. Uh, Don't worry, I got you. I got you. It's a lot today. If I was a fisherman, Martin's working with the kids this morning. He's a fisherman. Your dad's a fisherman, right? Loves to fish. I almost wanted to wear some waders today. You know how they put those waders on. Those are are rocking. That's a rocking look, those waders, you know. Because we're going to wade into some deep theological waters with this. So just if you came today thirsty for some milk, I have a meat sandwich for you instead. So uh, we've got to put our thinking caps on here. So he mentions three stages of sanctification. Let's just see what we can get done. The first stage, stage one, is that sanctification has a definite beginning at regeneration, and you could put in the word salvation instead of regeneration, because the scriptures talk about regeneration. That's when God comes into my life. I was dead, spiritually dead in my trespasses and sins. And it's God who made me alive. And the Hebrew word that Paul uses in Ephesians is actually the word quicken. He quickened me. Meaning, my spiritual life, my spirit, he made it alive because it was dead in trespasses and sins. That's regeneration. Sanctification, spiritual growth, progress begins at the moment that I'm saved. The initial first stage, we spent a lot of time in Romans 6 that we read for our scripture reading this morning. The initial first stage is a definite break from the ruling power of sin. Because sin wants to be king of your life. Sin wants to rule on the throne of your heart. Sin wants to be your master and make you a slave so that you obey without question. Jesus sets you free from the ruling power of sin. Now, I'm not talking about how we feel. I'm not talking about our failures. We still make mistakes. We're going to address all that. Because every statement produces three more questions. I realize that. Because this is deep doctrine. That's what deep doctrine does. You ever do that? I'm studying. Oh, I need to go look at this. Oh, okay. I better go look. I need to. Go. And then finally, forget where I even started. This is deep doctrine. So I know more questions are going to come up. But it's the ruling, controlling power that sin wants to have over you that's broken when you come to Christ. To put it quite plainly, you have a new master, but each day you must choose to follow and obey him. Because your old king, Satan, sin in the flesh, have been dethroned, but they're not leaving the palace quietly. They're going to constantly try to retake the throne. But it's encouraging because scripture says that's not even possible. Not even possible. There should be a definite within the context of this Thessalonians 4 and purity. There is a definite moral change that occurs at the point of salvation. In Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Some of these verses I put the reference on your outlines for you. I'm not sure which ones. I think Titus 3 5. He talks about the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. And here's what he's saying. And listen, please listen closely. Once we have been born again, we cannot continue to sin as a habit or regular unbroken pattern of life. You see the difference? As a regular unbroken pattern of or habit of life. That's why John says in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3. He says, no one who is born of God practices sin. He cannot sin because he is born of God. And we say, wait a second. If I'm born of God, I don't sin. It says practices sin. That means the overriding, the dominating, the, the uh, main characteristic of my life It's not that I follow my lustful desires in sin as an unbroken habit of life. In other words, I, I don't live my life without striving to obey God. Because the unbeliever is not seeking to please God. The unbeliever, even a kind, good, gentle, generous unbeliever, is a slave to sin. Because he's not striving to please God. And we're talking about on the desire level. So stay with me. Some of you look panicked. Some of you look like you want to look to your neighbor, but you're too afraid because you give yourself away. Okay. First Corinthians, chapter six, verse 11 says, Paul said there, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Now, Acts chapter 20, verse 32. This is an interesting verse about sanctification. There, Christians are called all those who are sanctified. And when it says are sanctified, it's talking about a completed past activity that has continual effects. Does that make sense? He says in Acts twenty thirty-two, Christians are Christians because they are sanctified. Meaning you were set apart from from sin to God, and the fact that you were set apart from sin to God has ongoing, continuous effects as you move forward in your Christian life. The setting apart from sin and the setting apart to God continues throughout the course of our lives. And it begins at salvation. It's almost like a runner who's running and he takes off in the wrong direction. This happens with kids sometimes, little kids. Hey, come on. You know, you turn to go and they're taking off running that way. You say, hey, the hole! you're going the wrong way. You know, if they could just turn on the dime. We can't do that anymore. I might break a hip. But the little ones, they can just turn on a dime and spin around and go the other way. That's what he's talking about. Boom, I'm sanctified. So I turn and I run the other way toward God. That's what he's talking about. Talk about the trajectory of my life, the path of my life, the desires that I have for my life are new. They're changed. So the initial step in sanctification involves a definite break from the ruling power and love of sin so that the believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin. And no longer loves to sin, we already read it, but back in Romans six, especially verses eleven and fourteen that 's where Paul said, so you also must these are important words, so you also must consider circle highlight underline romans six eleven the word consider you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, for sin will have no Dominion over you. Now, this word consider is extremely important for your spiritual growth. What does that word mean? When he says consider yourself dead to sin, it means to, if you're a financial person or an accountant, you're going to love this. If you're a math person, a numbers person, you're going to love it. Uh, I love it, but I'm not a math person. Tracy, this is just for you. Nancy, Heather, Robin, I got your number. Okay, right here. To reckon, to take an inventory, an estimate, to conclude, to reason, to impute, to calculate, to put on one's account. So when he says consider yourselves dead to sin. He's saying do the mental math. Do the calculating. Do the accounting. You are dead to sin. When God looks at you, sin does not have ruling power over you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying you need to do the mental math. You need to order your actions To come in line with the facts of your reality as a Christian. Your reality is that sin is not your master. Sin will only master you to the level that you allow it as a believer. What he's saying here is that we must believe that what God says in his word is true in our life. Sanctification that changes and transforms a life begins with proper mental accounting. Notice what Paul didn't say in Romans 6. He didn't say. He didn't tell us to feel as if we were dead to sin. I don't dare do that, because if I only went by how I felt in my relationship with my struggles with sin, that would be a downward spiral that I would never be able to come out of. In fact, Paul saying You know, don't listen to your feelings. Listen to the facts. And when I'm discouraged or I'm struggling or or I'm spiritually, I see that dark tunnel ahead. I try to go back to the facts because the feelings are so strong. The thoughts, that internal conversation. And I have to literally tell myself, I have to literally talk out loud and say, "Okay, I'm feeling this. But the fact is that I'm dead to sin and this has power over me only because I'm allowing it to. I mean, we really have to talk ourselves down off of a spiritual ledge many times. I say cling to facts, not feelings. Paul didn't say you feel as if you're dead to sin. He didn't even say that we have to understand it fully. What he says there in Romans 6 is act on God's word because it is a fact and claim it as the truth in your life. Considering or reckoning, which is a good King James word, considering or reckoning myself dead to sin is a matter of faith that flows into action. Considering myself dead to sin is an act of faith that flows into action. In fact, I love Dr. Alva J. McLean's outline for the book of Romans. Four words No, reckon, yield, obey. I love that. That's the outline of Romans right there. No, reckon, or consider, yield yourself and obey. Someone says, You know what's in the book of Romans? I sure do. No, reckon, yield, obey. What's next? It's like when we endorse a check. I'm a fan of online banking or the drive through banking, but even that makes me impatient. I'm so impatient. Worst bank in the world. Bank of America, Norwalk Square. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. I go in there. First of all, have a can of change. I've been saving for a year and that's my bank. Oh, I'm sorry. We can't do that for you. What? So anyway, that's another thing after I stood in line for 20 minutes to tell them they couldn't do it. so It's like when we endorse a check. You sign the back of the check, right? And you deposit it. And what faith do you have when you sign that check and put it in the bank? You have faith that either your account or whoever's name is on the check, you have faith that the money's there because you're endorsing it. There was a time you can't do it anymore because of technology. There was a time when if you endorsed a check and you lost it, a person could find it and cash. it. Uh, It's not really that possible anymore. And don't tell me no, because that happened to me. If I really believe the money is in the checking account, I will sign my name and collect the money. That's what it means to consider myself dead to sin. I'm not claiming a promise. Let's be clear about that. This isn't claiming a promise. It's acting on a fact. Is what Paul's trying to point out. Some of us live. Oh, another good sermon title. I must be butter because I'm on a roll. Okay. Some of us Christians live in a virtual reality. The reality Is that sin is not my master. Jesus is. But I live my life in a way that would say the opposite. And Paul says, you've got to consider, you've got to reckon your account. You've got to look at the facts. The fact is you belong to me. And so you need to bring your actions in line with the reality. We often get it all wrong in the Christian life, don't we? We often get it all wrong in the Christian life, and so we struggle in our sanctification and our holiness. The truth is, the fact that we are saved by grace does not give us an excuse to sin, but it does give us a reason to obey. Do you see how we get it backwards? The fact that I have been saved by grace doesn't give me an excuse to sin. But the fact that I've been saved by grace does give me a reason to obey. Sometimes as Christians, we take a very cavalier attitude towards sin. We shrug our shoulders. We wink at sin. We're not offended. It doesn't bother us. We're saved. I've been saved by grace through faith. I even have the T-shirt. So I'm not really too concerned about my Christian life. I'm not too concerned about sin. That's the opposite of what God's intention is. As I look at Christ and I look at his perfect attributes, I look at his majesty. And then I look at the fact that he took on human flesh. The fact that he gave his life to rescue me, to set me free from an eternity of torment and suffering in hell. That doesn't give me an excuse to just shrug my shoulders after I come to him for salvation. If I'm meditating and pondering my Lord, that gives me every reason in the world to want to obey him. So if I'm stuck in a rut of my sin, it's because I don't have a high view of Christ. The world tells us to get out of the rut, I have to have a high view of myself. That's the exact opposite of the truth. That doesn't even work, by the way. But if I have a high view of Christ and his atoning sacrifice, that catapults me into sanctification. That gives me a reason to want to live for him. That gives me a reason to want to obey his commands. That's why Jesus said, John 14, 15, you help me say it. If you love me, you will Obey me. That's why he says that. Love is the motivation for the obedience. We're out of time for today, but write these down and we'll pick up here next week. In that passage you read, I would encourage you to read that passage sometime this week, maybe a couple times. Because there are three truths that Paul mentions in that Romans 6. That launch our sanctification and then maintain it. We'll just mention it. We're not going into any details today. But he says the grace of God gives us favor. Then he says we've been released from the dominion of sin and we are now slaves to Christ. That gives us freedom. And then my life should demonstrate fruit. And in that order. Favor, freedom, fruit. Let's pray together. You can stay seated and pray together. You can stand if you want. It's okay. Heavenly Father, we've waded into some deep waters today. And I hope it wasn't too wordy. I hope it wasn't too intellectual. I hope and I pray that your spirit would burn these truths on our hearts. They're very important. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means two things. I have to turn away from sin. I've been freed from my former master where I've lived for myself and I was enslaved to sin. Now I live for you. And I live for Jesus. The desire of my heart is to be pleasing to you. I'm not perfect. I still fail, I still sin, but my desire is to strive. Father, I pray you'd guard us from discouragement. I think sometimes as Christians we get discouraged because we we just want to be more perfect. We just we get discouraged because we look at ourselves and we know ourselves. We honestly know ourselves, so we get discouraged. But I think we need to know Christ even more than we know ourselves to push that discouragement away. We need to look at the perfection of our Savior. We need to just go for a deep swim in his grace and his mercy and his love and his patience and his kindness and his gentleness. And we need to understand, even on my best day. I still need grace. Even on the most perfect day I've ever lived, the day where I got as close to spiritual perfection as I've ever been before. I realize that I've fallen still so far short. That Christ had to die for my sins. And so, Father, it's really not about us. It's about our Lord. And we delight in him, we place our joy in him, we sing for him. He's the one that makes our heart beat each day. The fact that he saved us from our sins gives us a reason to obey him. So I pray, Father, for struggling with being controlled by sin, being dominated by sin, either just sin in general, or or maybe there are some here who are wrestling with a particular, specific sin that we would understand that a very large part of the cure for that is to meditate upon Christ. To meditate upon the perfections of his character as revealed in the Bible. To place those thoughts in our head. To place those scriptures in our mind. And to think and to dwell upon him and what he has done for us. Because the best defense is a good offense. So, Father, we leave here. I pray we'd be encouraged. I pray that we would marvel at what our Lord Jesus has done for us. And that it would propel us forward in our spiritual growth, in our sanctification. So we give you all the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen.